Welcome to Health Fail, where we explore failure in healthcare from the highly publicized to the never before told stories of failures that have birthed healthcare transformation and innovation. On this episode of Health Fail, we sit down with Alan Graham, founder and CEO of Mobile Loaves and Fishes, to discuss how failure in his life and career has strengthened his commitment to serving the homeless in Austin and reframing the conversation around mental health and addiction in the context of community. I'm your host, Zach Jiwa. And I'm your co-host, Michelle Noteboom. We hope you enjoy this episode of Health Bell. Alan, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thanks, Zach, Michelle. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for taking some time. Why don't you give us a little bit before we jump into failure? Why don't you give us um, a little bit about uh, yourself, where you came from? I remember the first time I met you. Um, I, yeah, I learned that you were a really successful builder in town, and that that you actually had a name for yourself that uh, was popularized by you know probably income and and all the amazing things that you did in the city. I didn't even know that about you, but tell us a little bit about yourself, where you came from, how you ended up. Um, uh, considering the homeless and and how you came to to start mobile loaves and fishes and then community first village yeah i uh i came out of the houston texas area uh, born in houston uh, grew up in the suburb of houston bel air it's no longer a suburb it's in the middle of the whole thing now uh, when i was in junior high school moved to alvin texas home of the greatest major league pitcher ever in the history of baseball <laughs> by the way nolan ryan go yeah. nolan um, and moved to Austin in uh, June of 1976. And when that area of the country was in my side view mirrors of my uh, U-Haul, it was one of the greatest memories I've ever had in my life because I felt like I was moving to Nirvana, and I did. Um, my, um, my real estate career, uh, people really uh, way over embellish uh, uh, that deal. I had a, a, a modest career, and I was proud of, uh, of the work uh, that I was doing. But during the middle of that career, uh, about you know 23 uh, years ago, in fact, 23 years ago right now in October, wow. uh, I had this spiritual epiphany uh, uh, through a spiritual retreat at our church, uh, October of 1996, uh, crazy, that just had me asking, uh, God, what do you want me to do? And I didn't know what that was. What do you want me to do? And uh, at that time, my real estate career, which had been this kind of deal, uh, a roller coaster uh, type of thing, was on a rocket ship uh, heading up with the things that we were doing at the time. So we're talking about late 90s. When late 90s, mid, mid 90s, 95, 96, mm-hmm. 97, and, and beyond. And so I come out of this uh, men's retreat, and I'm, uh, you know, God, I joined the Knights of Columbus. I become a, a, a Eucharistic minister, a sacristan. Uh, my wife's doing the nursery, and, you know, we're cooking barbecue and, you know, whatever you would do it, the normal churchy kind of things. And then uh, uh, for all of my life, I've been a leader. So I don't know if that's a narcissistic thing or whether it's a natural gifting. I was going to say, what makes you a leader? Um, I, I say I say the same thing about myself, and I'm sure Michelle. Yeah, I've read a lot on leadership. There's a lot of things that I believe about uh, uh, leadership. 
but even in high school and and beyond, I always either took the leadership roles or ascended to these mm-hmm. leadership roles. I think it's because you have um, the right voice for it. Well, authoritative. Well, I, I hope it's not a narcissistic thing. I don't believe I'm that uh, guy, but uh, uh, that that's how it's always been. And so I got asked uh, by my church, uh, who had been asked by Catholic Charities to participate in a ministry called, and this was in 1997, called the Sack Lunch Program. And, and part of the uh, conversion experience in this uh, men's retreat was adopting a philosophy that I called just say yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was going to say, that's probably what makes you a leader. It's, uh, it's one Someone of those. who's willing to raise one, their hand and say. Yeah. And so I do that, you know, uh, just, you know, a few minutes. I mean, within the past hour, I get an email from somebody that wants to come out here and tour the property at 530. And I could easily you know, my, my calendar just gets wiped out, booked. you know, but the answer is yes. I don't know what God's, what his purpose is. So if I say no, who am I saying no to? Sure. And so um, the church approached me and said that Catholic Charities tried to start this thing called the Sack Lunch Program, Social Assistance Christian Kitchens, uh, where they were organizing uh, five different churches in Austin, uh, across the nominational, uh, to five days a week provide 50 sack lunch meals to the day labor site that used to be downtown, kind of where City Hall is right now. And so I went and met with, uh, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that deal. So I went and met with the Catholic Charities people. And uh, um, they just didn't have the leadership capabilities that I needed on my side of the deal to be a follower of. And so I said, uh, let me, let me, let me own this deal. It's still yours. It's Catholic charities, but let me, let me get it all done because I I can't stand how this is moving. And so I put this deal together. And so every, uh, every five days a week, Monday through Friday, different churches. And for us at St. John Newman, it was uh, every Tuesday night, someone, a group of, of people would come in and prepare 50 sack lunch meals. And then the next morning, somebody would haul them early in the morning to the day labor site so that people that got a job that day would have a lunch that they could take with them. And so this was a system of going, uh, you know, muling your way over to Sam's Club, you know, getting the flatbed, putting all the stuff on it once a week. And Trisha and I were kind of managing it. And, um, and then sometime in this, and this was going along just great, you know, all the health department things and uh, people were having a good time and people felt purposeful at church and all of that. And then in the in the springtime of 98, uh, Trisha and I were having coffee with a girlfriend of ours, uh, Marianne Simmons. Marianne was telling us about a ministry in Corpus Christi where on cold winter nights, uh, Multiple churches would come together, pull their resources, and then take it out onto the streets to people that lacked abundance mm-hmm. on the cold winter nights. And at that moment, the image of what is now the famous Mobile Loaves and Fishes catering truck got into my mind as a distribution uh, vehicle from those of us who have abundance to those that lack. And I can't tell you where that truck came from. I can only tell you that it got into my brain. And uh, and here we are uh, 
will celebrate six million meals in 2020. Wow! Uh, and uh, so, so for our listeners, um, uh, the mobile loaves and fishes truck, and I've been out uh, several times. You've probably done it oh, as yes. well, right? This is a this is a commercial truck. It's it's not a food truck. Um, but it's a, it's a, it looks like a Chevy with a flat bed. Well, it's, it's got a cat, what we call a catering bed, and it's uh, typical of what, uh, uh, you know, it's not a hot truck where you can right. cook burgers or anything, but it takes out peanut butter sandwiches, sandwiches, uh, yeah, it's equipped with hot water, yeah, fruit and cheese. It's got a little oven on the back, yeah. so you could uh, a warming oven, so you could take hot items out if you wanted yeah. to. And so we, you just take those trucks, or the volunteers take those trucks where you know the homeless population would notoriously, notoriously either hang out or know that there's a truck that's going to be there every night of the week. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or every every day at five. Well, it depends. I yeah. mean, uh, the different commissaries move at different times, but sure. uh, that's that's a typical uh, yeah. time frame: five, six o'clock in the evening, and to feed the homeless. And today, how many trucks? Uh, Thirteen trucks in Austin. And then across. Uh, there that? are several. I'd have to kind of recount, but about three years ago, we we removed those from our system. And kind of cut them loose because we only wanted to focus on Austin. Right. They're, they're, we're still their godparents and we're in a close relationship, but uh, we just didn't want to manage something in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And, sure. Yeah. So, so that was the vision. That was the moment that you had the vision. You told me a story about, um, and I don't know where this is in the time frame, where you quit your job, you quit building houses, and you lived on the streets for a while. Well, I was a real a commercial real estate developer, yeah, so. Uh, <clears throat> well, the, the sequence of events is that the truck operation started. And look, it was just a ministry of St. John Newman. We were just going to feed people. It was one truck. Uh, there was zero intention of a lifestyle right. uh, change. But then you go out on the streets with this truck, and you start meeting the men and women that are out there, and you fall in love. I mean, really. You, you, you end up getting deep relationally uh, into that human person when you know that human person. And and when people start sharing their own vulnerabilities uh, with you, you even become deeper in love with them. This is a person that we became pretty deeply in love with each other. That would because, be me. You can't see it over the airway. Huh? Me. You can't see it over the airway. <laughs> yeah, you can't. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so... Uh, because of vulnerabilities that we're willing sure. to share with each other. And that that was something that was normal within our spiritual movement within St. John Newman, but that is something that's completely the norm on the streets when people will literally vomit out their struggles in their lives. And when that happens, it opens you up to be able to share the things that you got going on in your life so we don't have to live right. these false premises about how great all the things are when all the things are in fact not great, and you, and and then you you dive in and you find relationally who these people are and uh, and how wrong we have it, how wrong society has it, and how the stereotype is so uh, upside down. And then um, in about two thousand two, uh, I wanted to go deeper. And I wanted to go and spend the night with my friends uh, on the streets. Actually, I thought I was going to get on an airplane, fly to like Chicago and spend the night on the streets. And I was talking to a, a deacon at the time, Mark Hamlet, who's now a priest. Uh, 
why would you go to Chicago? Yeah. Why would you do that right here? And I'm, I'm going, well, why wouldn't I do that right here? You know? And so we put together a group, and in May of 2003, 15 of us, including you know, Mark Hamlet, went out on the streets and spent three nights out there. And I have since spent about 250 nights. We have shepherded maybe two or 3,000 people. Uh, and it's, it's a, a, a ubiquitous part of who we are at Mobilos and Fishes. And now you're sleeping with people, man. Yeah. You're, you're being uh, a, under the bridge. Under the bridge, bag. in the shelters, in the alleyways, in the urban camps, sitting in circles while they're smoking crack. With no money. No money. No cell phones. I, when I go out now, I do take, you know... I do it a little bit differently, me personally, <laughs> than, uh, uh, you know, because I like to go, hey, who wants a Starbucks? And people, you know, <laughs> are you kidding? Yeah. I go, I got a card. <laughs> yeah, we'll do a Starbucks. And um, so so what was your, what was your experience? What was, what was your expectation versus what were your experience? And, and I think this gets a little bit to failure and maybe our failure to recognize our failure to actually understand the homeless I think the issue. expectation was to go out and uh, see what it was like to be homeless. And that was a, that was a failed uh -huh. mentality. There was nothing about homelessness. I could walk back to my fancy house in Westlake Hills and crawl into my king-size bed and open up my double-wide refrigerator right. anytime I wanted to go. So there was no homelessness on my part, and I could never, ever... Uh, figure, you know, mirror that and understand that. What it, what happened to it on that first time was this revelation that this was a spiritual retreat. Mm. And we were going to encounter God out on the streets of Austin, Texas. And when, when that revelation occurred while we were out on the streets, because we were standing in line at Caritas, waiting in line for food and we're pretenders here mm -hmm. and we, and people know it. And so a guy challenged us. What are you guys effing doing in here? You're not homeless, you know? And, uh, one of my friends, John McNamara responds, we're on a spiritual retreat and, uh, and we're here to encounter God on the streets and we're with mobilos and fishes. And the guy that was, ripping us a new new one um, just melted mm. you're with mobilos and fishes oh welcome so the spiritual retreat thing was a paradigm shifting thing just over the course of that retreat and so we never take people out there to to experience homelessness there's nothing nothing remotely it's impossible sure you can't do it and um, and then it turned into a profound uh, spiritual deal where just about every step of the way, every block, you're encountering Christ, you're encountering transformation, you're encountering conversion. And it's, it's, it's like a drug. It's one of the reasons I've done so many of them. Yeah. Sure. So I guess that's, that's a profound experience. Um, you have insight into these people, new insight. You're not, you're not going to experience homelessness. Fast forward, take, take me through, take us through this inspiration. Well, you, you're th this being for the listeners. This is how many acres? 50 acres, uh, 51, 50, uh, 51 acres yeah. where you've built 
Um, and I, I was out here when this was dirt. I remember this just being dirt and being in awe, uh, especially looking now. Tiny homes, um, trailers, nice trailers, uh, seven acre garden. Um, is it Caritas or there's a St. David's healthcare uh, facility over well, here? Well, no, a uh, inter integral care, integral uh, care. A facility, outdoor Alamo Draft House movie the theater, yeah, 19 which, unit. Which is cool. If you're, if you're in Austin and if you have kids, which I do, you don't have to have kids, to come out here on a Friday night or Saturday night and watch a movie on an Alamo Draft House cinema with the community is pretty, pretty yeah, incredible. Pretty I'll, I'll plug that. There's a lot of incredible things here. But from from delivering you know cold sandwiches in a truck you know every night to 51 acres how do you get here well you you're in relationship with people and when you're in relationship with people there's a lot you begin to learn about people and then um, and the more you're in relationship with people that come from that space there began to be a common denominator uh, that was resonating with me, which was uh, every one of them came from a profoundly, catastrophically broken family. Mm. You see, the original cell of social life is the family. It's where men and women come together and they create life. And within this cellular life, um, we're supposed to nurture and nourish the people that we create. Well, over the history of human existence, things happen, man. People die, people get killed, people get diseases, uh, parents get mentally ill, they become alcoholic drug addicts, they beat up their kids, they chain their kids, they rape their kids. There's lots of trauma that's going on uh, inside of our families. And... Um, and I began to put those pieces together that the common did not, because we all have drug addicts, alcoholics, mentally ill, all that's inside of our families already. But we, most of our families have this safety net. And you can always go live with mama or. Well, yeah. Or, or, you know, in my case, my mother was profoundly mentally ill, mm -hmm. struggled her entire life, but she had a mother and father that cared for her and had money that could. Uh, keep her in the best hospitals when she needed to be hospitalized to battle my father when he was trying to strip her of maternal uh, custody of her four boys, uh, all of that kind of stuff. So my mother never ended up homeless. I have a younger brother that's a 30, 40 year addict and bipolar, schizoaffective, and uh, it's a mess, but you know, it's my family's mess. Right. And, um, but for these men and women out here, no, not so. And, um, and then, you know, as I begin to really study spiritually uh, the family and begin to dive into it in the catechism of the Catholic Church uh, and what we believe spiritually the family comes from, you go look at Judeo-Jewish uh, tradition, uh, uh, very same thing, uh, and the power of the family. Uh, how do we begin to recognize that what they need is a family and not a house. Mm -hmm. And so we have a phrase within Mobilos and Fishes that housing will never solve homelessness, but community will. And so, um, and then I'm puzzled that we live in the most abundant country ever in the history of the universe. 
and we have all this homelessness here. Uh, how can that possibly be? So we went out in 2005 and bought one uh, gently used recreational vehicle like you see behind me and uh, lifted one guy up off the streets. And then I did a second one and a third one. And as a serial real estate entrepreneur, I began to fantasize about building a KOA uh, on steroids. So, so what, what do you think has failed that in society that we have the richest country in, in the history of the world, abundance of everything, that we still have this profound problem with homelessness? Well, we used to not. Uh, it's relatively new. Uh, I would say somewhere in the three to four generation new. The idea that we had mentally ill and we've always had mentally it, ill addiction. They're just you know, and the, but they've been part of the community, and we dealt with them in different ways. Uh, you know, uh, uh, but there's something that's been happening over the past four generations, past eighty years. You know, basically, you know post-World War II, for the most part, um, that's disconnecting us from each other. Um, and it's interesting because I've had a lot of thought and conversations around this. And uh, and so I was talking to somebody one time and they said, well, it re really began with the advent of refrigeration. I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, most societies in the world grew up on the coast because that's where all the food is. Mm -hmm. And if we went out and had a big haul one day, guess what we had to do? Share. We had to share it all. Man. Right. Then all of a sudden, refrigeration came into being. We became hoarders. And we became hoarders of that product. Okay. And then refrigeration led to the advent of air conditioning. Ultimately, you know, the only, way, the only way we can live in Austin, Texas. <laughs> well, a lot of people lived in Austin, Texas without air conditioning. And I grew up in Houston, Texas without air conditioning. So it's a doable deal, uh, but still point uh, well made. And um, and then um, post-World War II, this began to accelerate because we began to build these subdivisions. Mm. And inside these subdivisions are what I call these hermetically sealed single-family sarcophaguses. And what's happening today is that you and I drive around in our tinted windshield SUVs. Nobody can see us. We can't even, you can't even wave at me anymore. I can't go, hey, there's Zach, Zach. You know, Michelle, how you doing? That, that can't even happen from your automobile anymore because of the tinted windshield. And then you have spewing into the car, Sirius XM radio, putting all the poison into our brain. And you drive home to your single family hermetically sealed sarcophagus. You push a button and the garage door opens. You drive in, garage door goes down. You go in, it's air conditioned, got all the refrigeration. There's 10 months of food from Sam's Club in there. And then you go outside in your backyard, and your backyard's got an eight-foot-tall privacy fence. You've got a swimming pool, sport court, and a barbecue pit. The American dream, right? The house has grown so big now that every child has their own bedroom. There's never, never been there in the history of mankind. And we're isolated. Yeah. 
Whereas you don't have to wave to your neighbor anymore. No. When I was a kid, uh, we used to get on our bikes and ride 10 blocks to the public swimming pool. There'd be 100 kids peeing in the pool at the same time. Remember the chlorine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then I'd I'd be... You're older than I am, but I remember that also. (laughs) But I'd be... (laughs) I'd be over there, and all of a sudden, I'd look across, and there would be Michelle. I'm 12. She's 12. She's got that cute little bikini on, and I just completely fall in love with you. I've never been in Alvin, Texas. I I, I know you have. I'm really worried about where this podcast is going. And so, (laughs) so here I am falling in love with Michelle at the swimming pool that all the kids are peeing in, and I've never met her. She's just over there, okay? And then within a couple of minutes, Zach shows up and starts holding her hand. Yeah. So that's definitely me. Instantly, instantly, I've been rejected. I've lost the love of my life. And then you came in and took her from me. And so I want to get you out into the parking lot as fast as I can. Yeah. So we go out. Somehow I lure you out into the parking lot, and a fight ensues. And we're 12. So we're flailing at each other with 12-year-old little arms. And about two minutes into that, we're exhausted. Nobody's winning. We start laughing at each other. The next thing, our arms are around each other, and we're buddies. We moved into a loss to love and then gained friends in that deal. But now we're cocooned into our eight-foot-tall privacy fence backyards with our... our, um, Front porch is the size of a postage stamp. Yeah. With no front porch, no way to interact with each other when you walk the dog. It's just, uh, and and let me tell you something else. So the point is our community breaks down because of. Inside your family. Our community breaks down in our family. Look, in the 1950s, the average size of a single family home in the United States of America was 958 square feet. Yeah, I, I grew up in a trailer actually smaller than these, and I didn't want to be inside with my family ever, and I never was. And so, yeah. I, well, in my house, it was uh, two boys in, in each room, and it was warfare. And so, and everybody had to come out to watch TV in the living room because there was only one TV right. and, and the real clicker. But today, everybody's got TV. Everybody's got the internet. Uh, and the average size, and the average, the average size of a single-family home was 958 square feet, with 3.6 people living in that. That's 250 square feet a person, mm-hmm. approximately. Today, the average size of a home is 2,500 square feet, with 2.5 people living in it. So we've gone from sharing 250 square feet, you know, to a thousand. So even inside of our homes and what we call the American dream, we're disconnecting our families. So nobody's coming out of their bedrooms anymore in order, order, you know, I mean, how much have your kids been pissed at you while they were growing up? Not my, my children. My oh, children, your children are perfect. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so there was so much you. conflict, you know, yeah. between mothers and daughters in particular. Uh, and same thing inside my house, man. And it was important to resolve. It was important to move into conflict, and it was important to resolve conflict. We're, we're not doing that anymore. What I, what I see you drawing a picture to, and and getting into to failure and, and drawing a line is so. And, and I've met quite a few of of the folks who live out here that are my age, older, your age, 
right? So they grew up in some of the same situations that that you're describing. The family is what broke down. I think what you're describing is this epidemic, can we call it an epidemic, is only going to get worse the more the, the, the nucleic family, what's the right word, breaks down because when one of my kids, God forbid, ends up in a situation without a family, they've been in this 2,500 square foot, 3,500 square foot in my, in my case, right? They're not going to know how to, you know, live in community. If they, if they, they end up homeless, like this is the only salvation for them to find community. Yeah. Well, my kids got lucky that we had three girls in one bedroom and two boys in another. I mean, that started out as we got to do something about this. Yeah. We got to figure out how to add on to this house. Thank God we went into ministry and that never happened. Yeah. The girls fought. I got a letter from one of my daughters when we moved to Nice in, the third third girl, uh, or I, f- I forget how the letter was. I'd have to ask Tricia again, but it started off with, you have stolen my mother. <laughs> I mean, it was, they were hurt. They were hurting. But that was part of... Yeah. Yeah. So, Alan, I'm I'm curious, um, especially given you know the headlines in the news in Austin today. Um, a, a lot will point to the city or maybe even the state government to solve this problem. I think their answer, as the headlines that I've read, is you know more housing. You're you're saying no, it's not about housing, it's about community. What cannot can our leaders, can our city leaders? fix this? Can they be additive to fix this? Or is their solution never going to to fix homelessness? I think the question should be, should they? Should our leaders? Should they? Yeah, as opposed to can they? The question, the can, you know, I have, I I don't think so. So, Should, uh, I say absolutely not. So whose job is it? It's our job. So when there has been a nuclear bomb thrown into that cellular life of the family. Whose responsibility is it? If we were 2,000 years ago, Zach and I uh, went out to hunt and gather and somehow I slipped and fell off a cliff and died, you know, he would be coming back and my family would be protected. My family would be nurtured and nourished by the village, by the community. Mm -hmm. And I believe that this is a human issue and, and a relational issue and not a transactional issue. Housing is important. Don't get me wrong. People need shelter. But what they need more than anything, because within each of us, there are two fundamental innate qualities. Argue with me if you want. Each of us desires to be fully and wholly loved. Mm-hmm. You ever been alone? Yes. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> We all have. We're not talking about on an island in the middle of nah. the Yeah. And we all, des- <laughs> we all desire to be fully and wholly known, yeah. valued for who we were. Always enjoyed the whole Inga deal, just, you know. <laughs> but that was, that, was, that was valuable to you as a human person. It wasn't just valuable economically to you as a human person. It was valuable. It was an identity to be, that attracted. To be being known and yeah. recognized and acknowledged for what you do. and That's exactly yeah. right. Whatever and, it is. And so if all we're going to do is take you and warehouse you in some housing thing somewhere, that is not enough. You've got to live in community always. 
I love being around my family, my kids. I love all the action here. It's inspiring. It's, you know, a, you know, just knowing that you were going to come today because we go back and, you know, have a, you know, it, it was just joyful. You know, and that's, you know, and there, there's a there's a part of that, you know, if I get on Facebook and see Hope and doing her deal where she's Hope's my off daughter. wherever the, you know, foreign country she's in or wherever she's at, uh, it's fun, you know. Every picture that I ever see of her takes me back yeah. 18, 20 years. So I'm guessing. To that period of time. I'm guessing, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm... I, as we talk about healthcare, as we talk about health um, in this community, I'm guessing you would say we uh, we address health, mental health incorrectly as well. The same for the same reasons that we're addressing the homeless issue and the homeless population incorrectly, we're probably addressing mental health incorrectly. We're trying to. Um, address the the symptoms of of mental illness versus the whole person i'm curious to know as you've moved people into this community that have mental issues um mental health issues how are you able to address those how are 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 people here in this community finding healing for their mental health and behavioral Um, issues i don't think there's any healing from the mental health uh the Issues. I think if you're bipolar, you're bipolar. If you're schizophrenic, you're schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. If you have a natural tendency to be depressed, you're depressed. If you're schizoaffective, you're, you're schizoaffective. There, there are there are issues, very complex issues, physiological, brain-wise, that are just so not understood. Um, but you can relieve the suffering. You can palliative relieve the suffering. Uh, of men and women by doing certain things. One of those things happens to be uh, being adequately housed, Mm -hmm. uh, being able to uh, have access to uh, hygiene issues, to hydration issues, uh, to elevate your nutritional level out of the purely McDonald's level nutritional issue that's on the streets Mm -hmm. with heavily processed and not very nutritious foods to, uh, you know, a higher level. Uh, People come out of their houses. There's an exercise issue here. And then there's the better medical care, your ability to manage uh, chronic diseases, including mental health care. If you're diabetic and insulin dependent, you got refrigeration here. So no problem there. Uh, uh, Whereas giant problem on the street. if, you, if you're taking psychotropic drugs, uh, you have the ability to store those uh, away from thievery that's difficult on the street. So you can, you know, uh, medicate. And I'm not saying I'm a John fan of medication. We try right. to get people dialed back off of medication. But we also see the value of, of, of uh, you know, conventional medications as well. And then when you're living in community and you're around people that actually care a lot about you and things aren't right, I can look at you and go, something's not right. Yeah. There's yeah. healing in that. Huh? Healing in well, that. Well, there's healing in that. And then I care. And, 
And then we have all kinds of people out here, uh, partnerships on the mental health care side, the physical health care side, so we can try to get the best that we can in a phenomenally broken, failed system. Yeah. So, Alan, how have you modeled failure in, from your life with your family and within this community? Well, um, uh, I don't get to interview people for jobs very much uh, anymore because this organization has gotten big. It'll, it'll be pretty rare uh, that, that I would, but I used to. And when I did, uh, these young people would come in. They'd have these beautiful little you know, resumes that talk about how awesome they are. And the, and the, and the first uh, question out of my mouth is, you know, I, I love your resume, man. This really speaks very well. But I'd like to hear you tell me about your top five failures in your life and how you overcame those. And they're looking at me stunned because that's not a question. I go, look, I, I know that you're 23. And, you know, but look, you can even tell me about the failed relationship in junior high school or not being asked to be on the captain of the football team or the cheerleader, you know, or the bad Tell me about those failures and how you overcame those failures. Um, just a kind of a side story. I got asked to do a Pecha Kucha talk. The Pecha Kucha comes out of uh, uh, Japan in the architectural community uh, because when Japanese architects were presenting, they were over pontificating their deal. So they started a deal that if you're going to come in here, you have 20 slides and 20 seconds per slide to convey your deal. So this started the Pecha Kucha movement. So we have a movement here in Austin called Pecha Kucha. And I got invited to be a presenter and they do it three or four times a year here in Austin. So I, I got invited it was, a, it was a, the hardest talk I've ever given because I'm totally extemporaneous. I use no notes. You're chasing the slide deal. It's just horrible. But there was this guy that went before me. His name is Tito Beveridge. Heard of him. Okay. A lot of people have heard and of him. And he got permission to give a two-minute preamble to his 22nd, 20-slide deal. And he goes, he goes, two weeks ago, my best friend's son committed suicide. He had gotten a B on his report card mm -hmm. and was so devastated by that B that he elected to take his own life. And, uh, and, uh, and then he launches into his 20 slide Pecha Kucha. Slide number one, failed lawn mowing business in high school. Slide number two, failed whatever in college. Had the business cards from all these. Uh, business number three, complete failure. Graduates with like a petroleum engineering degree. Uh, failed at that. Goes off and does this thing over there. Fails at that deal. It was failure, 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 failure. And then uh, one Christmas, he decides as Christmas gifts because he was a big fail to, to make vodka at home. And he made vodka and gave it to people uh, as Christmas gifts. And it was, you know, it was well received. And he liked doing that. And then he started infusing the vodka. And then he went to the 
Texas alcohol, whatever thing, yeah. and go, I want to make vodka. And they go, it's illegal to distill liquor in the state of Texas. He goes, really? And so he gets all the regulations on the distillery deal and finds in that deal that there's no law against distilling alcohol in the state of Texas, goes back to them and go, there's no law here that says that I can't distill deal. First distillery ever. I'm not sure how much Tito is worth. I think it's somewhere in the two and a half. <laughs> I was say, the rest of the story has been written. To three and a half billion dollars. is uh, He's on the Fortune 500, yeah. you know, uh, richest people in the United States of America. Built on top of nothing but failure. And his talk was, how did we in this country get to the point where a freaking bee could possibly be anything remotely close to a failure? Yeah. Everybody should get bees. Mm. Everybody should fail. And we've lost uh, that, that ability. The pressure is so intense on people. Whereas I love it. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, it's not failure. It's just things don't always work, you know, the way that you want. You know, I'm a dropout. You know, I couldn't complete college. You know, and, you know, I don't look at, I look at my journey and all the ups and downs of the journey that I've had over my life, it being a joyful part of what brought me to even be sitting here in front of you two right now. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's all a journey. That's, yeah. that's a great story. I mean, um, you know, to, to hear that story from you and, and to hear that failures accept, not only acceptable, but, but. Part you, you desired it's part of it you know austin man of the year so many awards <laughs> yeah. i know you scoff at that yeah. but but it's just been incredible alan you have been more than generous with your time um we try to keep these things to to close to 30 minutes we're we're running up on 45 minutes which i don't think anybody's going to be upset about um quick but, plug for um yeah i want to a quick plug for your book um, and your um, your own podcast. Tell us a couple Yeah, things. so we have the Gospel Con Carne uh, podcast, uh, which is the Gospel with Meat. Oh, I thought it was with Chili. I always go with <laughs> Gospel with Carne. <laughs> yeah, I know. With meat. I know. Yeah, it yeah, is. yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it could be Chili. Chili's good too. It's but good uh, put meat on that Gospel. Go bug. Gospel Con Carne. Yeah. So you can find that on the. Uh, well, you, you can go to our maybe. website at mlf.org and it'll navigate you to all the different channels that the thing's on. I'm not sure I understand all, sure. all that. Uh, I, I picked it up on iTunes. So yeah, I, great. I so it's an, an easy, iTunes deal. Easy There's a series of other. What do you talk about on the Gospel Con Carne? What I do is uh, we, we, it's. Um, it's published twice a month, and one month is typically a neighbor here in the community, and uh, it's all about diving into who they are, where they've been, the trauma from their background, and then um, 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 uh, how they came, you know, to the community first village. And then I try to get somebody uh, very influential, like a John Paul DeJore, right. which you've had, and I've had others of. of uh, uh, like John Paul in and talk about their life. And what it does is that uh, the, the goal is that we, we think we got the haves and the have nots, but really what we do is have people with abundance and people that don't. And, and, and there's, there's, there's a symbiotic relationship between all of us. We're, we're not all, it's not that John Paul is anywhere close to being 
homeless on the streets, that's not, but his life journey uh, can mirror anybody that's sure. been on the street. Any of us, any yeah. of us could be homeless yeah. with yeah. just one wrong turn. And so it's uh, it's trying to break down that paradigm, and then it's trying to really show how human uh, we all are. And so, you know, we want our resourced, influential guests to be vulnerable uh, and tell their story, and we want uh, our friends that are formerly uh, chronically homeless uh, to be vulnerable and tell their story. And boy, sometimes they really vomit that stuff yeah. out. It's really great. I've, I've enjoyed yeah. the podcast. I, I've had some of the richest people in Austin, Texas crying in here, man. That's awesome. Yeah, breaking down. It's beautiful. And then the book, uh, Welcome Homeless, uh, published a couple of years ago, One Man's Journey of Discovering uh, the Meaning of Home, uh, published by Harper Collins and uh, the Thomas Nelson uh, Mark. And, uh, and so go buy that book. It'd yeah. be great. Yeah. And, and let's not forget... Um, you're a nonprofit. MLF Correct. is a nonprofit. I've uh, spent some time raising money. I contribute regularly. Uh, if you want to go to uh, do something amazing, um, go to MLF.org and contribute. Yeah. Um, help help house another homeless person. And if you really want to do something amazing, come to Austin, Texas. Or if you're in Austin, Texas, come out to the village. And uh, it's, That's right. It's, and, and right over there, you, you, we can stay here. Right? Yeah, you can I've stay always here. wanted yeah. to do that. Yeah. You can actually yeah. Airbnb it. Yeah, Airbnb. Yeah, yeah. Airbnb on the village. Yeah. So whenever you come for South by Southwest or ACL Festival, why not stay the rodeo. in the community? The, the rodeo. rodeo. Yeah, this is right here. It's right across the street. What else? You know, what are your what are your final words to our to our listeners? I mean, most of the folks who listen to our podcast coming from healthcare, maybe coming from technology. Um, you know, the followers that, that follow people like me and Michelle. But well, what do you want to leave us with? Yeah, the, you know what you see on our street corners and what you see underneath our bridges is not an intractable situation. We've proven. It. If you want to see the proof, all you got to do is come to Austin, Texas and see it firsthand. Awesome. Amen. Great. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Thank awesome. You. Great. Beautiful. Beautiful.